Hello, my name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions. And I'm Proven Paradox, a guy with a lot of questions. And you're listening to Bright on Buddhism, a podcast where we discuss East Asian Buddhism, answering listener-submitted questions from listeners just like you, and introducing concepts of Buddhism that you may or may not be familiar with in a casual, conversational setting. Enjoy. Here, is it possible for one's body and mind to become possessed by another? In what context? I have heard tales of monks who act as oracles or deliverers of prophecy from Buddhas, Bodhisattvas, gods, or spirits. They put on ritual garb and exhibit preternatural or even supernatural qualities while they deliver prophecies about the future. Ah, yes. These are fascinating rituals indeed. To answer your question, I would say, yes, such a thing as possession would be conceivable in this world. This body is not my body, and that body is not your body. This mind is not my mind, and that mind is not your mind. There is no self which can own these things we call mind and body, so it makes sense that they could be traversed and visited, like stations on a road. Whoever does this could conceivably bring their knowledge and memories with them as well. Fascinating. It must take much practice and effort to do such a thing. I would imagine so. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Bright on Buddhism. This week, we will be discussing possession in Buddhism. What is possession in Buddhism? What are its doctrinal origins and applications? How ought we interpret and understand it? We hope you enjoy. So, what is possession in Buddhism? This is a fun question, because in my opinion, it deals with something that seems on its face to be completely non-Buddhist but is really something with a long history and highly developed ritual tradition. To start, when we talk about possession in Buddhism, we are faced with a number of difficulties presented by the word alone. The first difficulty is that we are not necessarily dealing with a strictly linguistic translation task. What I mean by this is that we don't have a single individual word in the original language to look to that we could try to describe and translate into English as the word possession. We have a ritual occurrence, which is described in a number of different ways in the original language, so when we attempt to come up with a word in English to refer to it, the act becomes just as much a cultural, religious, and historical act as much as a linguistic act. The second difficulty we deal with is the fact that possession, as a word in English, carries along a lot of Judeo-Christian baggage. However, to make things easy and familiar in English, we're going to be talking about Buddhist possession as the same kind of possession that we refer to in that Judeo-Christian context, the context where a demon is said to possess the body and mind of a person for nefarious purposes. However, we should be extremely careful saying that, because the possession we're talking about in Buddhism is not at all nefarious or evil, and it's not even demons or other evil beings who are doing it. In the type of possession we're talking about, the practitioner trains and studies in the texts and, and meditation and other various practices, which are fairly familiar to us at this point, and then they have a private initiation into the tradition with a master. After this initiation, they gain the ability to channel or to be possessed by Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and gods and spirits for ritual purposes. One of the most important applications of this practice is funerary. When somebody in the monastic community of certain Chinese and Tibetan Buddhist schools dies, and they were very important, 
Other practitioners undergo this sort of possession as part of the funerary ritual. They will be possessed by a Buddha, a Bodhisattva, a god, or even by the deceased themselves to communicate to the living that the deceased is blessed to a better realm or that they're going to have a better rebirth or something like that. This possession is often oracular in nature, knowledge that regular humans could not or would not obtain in their daily lives. This phenomenon is most frequently observed in Tibetan and Chinese Buddhism, where, for example, the Dalai Lama employs an oracle to help him govern the exiled Tibetan state, which we'll talk about more in the next section. However, this sort of possession can be found all across East Asia. It is widely thought that this sort of divine possession was commonplace among those religious traditions in those regions which predated Buddhism. And when Buddhism arrived, it localized and adopted those possessions into the ritual tradition. The reason why this seems to be the case is that there is not much, if anything, in the canon about possession that we can speak of. What about the Samalapala Sutta? Doesn't it expressly forbid this sort of work when it forbids getting oracular answers to questions addressed to a spirit in a mirror, in a young girl, or to a spirit medium? Good question. It does expressly forbid oracle practice. So how does Tibetan Buddhism and all the other forms of Buddhism that practice this get around this prohibition? There are a couple of answers. One answer is that they argue that the Buddha is the one facilitating the manifestation of the deity who is being channeled through the medium. It's common when Buddhism travels to East Asia for them to say that their native deities, who were there before Buddhism arrived, were actually always manifestations of Buddhas who came to teach in a form that the people were ready for. And that's the case here. Another answer is that Tibetan Buddhism in particular does not always strongly emphasize the Pali Canon. As the birthplace of Vajrayana or esoteric Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhists regard those texts as being exoteric or revealed teachings, which are helpful and useful, but ultimately insufficient for attaining Buddhahood. They rely more on esoteric or secret or closed teachings that claim to contain higher and more expedient truths. This metric is used frequently to justify seemingly heterodox ritual practices in Tibetan Buddhism and in other forms of Mahayana and esoteric Buddhism all across East Asia. It's also worth noting that if the Buddha is the one facilitating this possession process, then the doctrine of skillful means would probably supersede the ban you see in the Samalapala Sutta. So because it's the Buddha, it's okay for this to happen. Exactly. We have an instance of unitary executive theory right here. Yep. The Buddha does it and it makes it okay. And it's also worth noting that in the Samanapala Sutta, that particular passage is telling practitioners what they ought not to do. And it doesn't say that Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and Arhats cannot do that. It says that lay people can't do that stuff whenever they're following Buddhism. So that kind of changes the dynamic as well. Possession seems to be a strictly ritualistic phenomenon in Buddhism. However, just because it is only a ritual thing does not mean that the texts are not used to support it, as we'll see when we get to the next questions. But before that, we should discuss some of these pre-Buddhist religious contexts in order to make sense of what's going on here. In Tibet, the indigenous religious tradition is referred to as Bom. It does not actually quite predate Buddhism from a textual standpoint, but scholars suspect that it has some continuities that reach back into pre-Buddhist Tibet. Some of these continuities are the shamanistic and animistic qualities of the tradition. 
practices of bone are not really well known except in the context of Buddhism, but they are thought to have included cults of royalty, which are groups within the larger religious framework who directed their ritual and worship toward deceased royalty. These groups were very common all across this region of Asia throughout history, as it was thought that royalty were sponsored or mandated by the gods while they were living, and that when they died, they would go on to rule in the spirit realm. Bone also practiced funerary rituals, seasonal rituals for good fortune, magic, medicine, astrology, and exorcism, and divination as well. Many of these were carried out by means of this divine possession, where the practitioner would become possessed by the Buddha or the deity in question and carry out the ritual. As far as we know from textual and archaeological evidence, this possession practice always existed in the context of Buddhism, meaning that the Buddhas have been part of the Bon Pantheon for all of recorded history. We could speculate that before our earliest textual evidence, which comes from the 10th century Common Era, the Buddhas were not involved, but we can't know that for sure. The important aspect for us to discuss is what is actually said to be happening when a practitioner becomes possessed by a Buddha, and how this is significant. It is said that this possession is a result of various tantric or esoteric practices. You'll remember that tantric or tantric practices are practices regarding one's breathing and body position, and esoteric Buddhist practices are the three mysteries, or practices of body, speech, and mind. We can't know what these practices actually are because they're closed and initiatory practices, but we know from being able to see their rituals that they're significantly related to the possession in a ritual context. As such, the practitioner, after they have been initiated, will access the possession by means of donning ritual attire, usually a mask depicting whoever is supposed to possess them, and then they will dance or move around in a specific fashion while special music is played. This music is usually bells and drums and horns, and once the practitioner has become possessed, they will begin to speak in a specific way so as to communicate the will or the message of the Buddha or the spirit who has possessed them. Just a quick note before we move on. We've not fully encountered closed or initiatory practices on this show yet, and I just wanted to explain a little bit about what that means and discuss their significance and how we ought to understand them. Closed or initiatory practices are those religious practices for which identity is a factor according to which you can be excluded from participating. This identity could be racial or ethnic, but it can be other types of identity as well. These practices are reserved for people who have the exclusive identity, and so cannot be done, viewed, or studied by anyone from outside that group that has that identity, except in particular cases. These practices are then mostly impossible to study among living people, because those practices belong to them and do not belong to the academy. This can be frustrating, because Western scholarship, or academia in general, proclaims knowledge for knowledge's sake. It proclaims itself as neutral and respectful and idealistic, and as working toward the exchange of culture and ideas in a figurative, free and open market. However, though these are the ideals of the academy, the reality is often very different. On the one hand, knowledge is not neutral. Some things we take for granted as common knowledge are only known to humanity because of atrocities exacted upon someone or upon a group of people. On the other hand, some knowledge is precious and sacred to particular cultures and peoples, and to take that away from them, especially without their consent, is very unethical. 
Investigation as a scholarly activity must be anti-colonial, respectful, and sensible about the ramifications of the often bloody power of knowledge. What are the doctrinal origins and applications of possession in Buddhism? As we've mentioned, the historical origins of possession lie outside of Buddhism, and it all begins with this deity called Pehar. Pehar has been a member of the Tibetan pantheon since at least the 8th century CE, possibly longer. Pehar is this god who is part of a class of deities called the Gyalpo class. These Gyalpo spirits are gods or powerful spirits who are haughty and vengeful and require placation through ritual and other practice. They kind of transform over time into these protector spirits, much like the four heavenly kings in Buddhism. We've talked about this kind of deity before. These are deities who look very scary and terrifying and vengeful, and the fact that they look like that is meant to make the practitioners feel very safe, and to make people with malicious intent toward the practitioners feel afraid. These types of deities are everywhere in East Asian Buddhism, and their origins usually lie in the indigenous religion that predates Buddhism in the region. They go from being forces of nature that need to be placated and tamed and brought under control by means of ritual and worship, to being protectors of the Dharma and of Buddhists themselves. Pehar is said to have been one of the primary deities or spirits who possesses the oracle in matters of prophecy relating to the Tibetan state. Pehar was originally a wild and untamed god who was brought under control by means of a big ritual dance which simulated a spirit battle, where Pehar was converted to Buddhism and made to promise never to harm sentient beings. After this, all other spirits were put under Pehar's control to protect the Tibetan state, monastic system, as well as Tibetans and Buddhists in Tibet themselves. This was done by a character called Padmasambhava, a very important 8th century Buddhist lama in the Vajrayana tradition. The story of this ritual is very cool, and I will link resources to it in the show notes. Now that we have the origins, we can talk about the method itself. I should note that this is explained by the 14th Dalai Lama in his book, Freedom in Exile, which we'll refer to in the show notes. I'll be reading a passage from the text that describes how the Dalai Lama deals with his Nechong Oracle, because he says it better than I ever can. For context, the Nechong Oracle serves as the personal oracle to the Dalai Lama, and the name Nechong refers to the name of the monastery, which the oracle is the head of. For more context of terms that he's going to use here, a Kuten is the actual person who becomes possessed and Dorje Drakden is another name for Pehar. Quote, Dealing with the Nechung Oracle is by no means easy. It takes time and patience during each encounter before he will open up. He is very reserved and austere, just as you would imagine a grand old man of ancient times to be. Nor does he bother with minor matters. His interest is only in the larger issues, so it pays to frame questions accordingly. He also has definite likes and dislikes, but he does not show them very readily. Nechung has his own monastery in Dharamsala, but usually he comes to me. On formal occasions, the Kuten is dressed in an elaborate costume consisting of several layers of clothing topped by a highly ornate robe of golden silk brocade, which is covered with ancient designs in red and blue and green and yellow. On his chest he wears a circular mirror which is surrounded by clusters of turquoise and amethyst, its polished steel flashing with the Sanskrit mantra corresponding to Dorje Drakten. Before the proceedings begin, he also puts on a sort of harness, which supports four flags and three victory banners. 
Altogether, this outfit weighs more than 70 pounds, and the medium, when not in a trance, can hardly walk in it. The ceremony begins with chanted invocations and prayers, accompanied by the urgings of horns, cymbals, and drums. After a while, the Kuten enters his trance, having been supported until then by his assistants, who now help him over to a small stool set before my throne. Then, as the first prayer cycle concludes and the second begins, his trance begins to deepen. At this point, a huge helmet is placed on his head. This item weighs approximately 30 pounds, though in former times it weighed over 80. Now the Kuten's face transforms, becoming rather wild before puffing up to give him an altogether strange appearance, with bulging eyes and swollen cheeks. His breathing begins to shorten, and he starts to hiss violently. Then, momentarily, his respiration stops. At this point, the helmet is tied in place with a knot so tight that it would undoubtedly strangle the Kuten if something very real were not happening. The possession is now complete, and the mortal frame of the medium expands visibly. Next, he leaps up with a start, and grabbing a ritual sword from one of his attendants, begins to dance with slow, dignified, yet somehow menacing steps. He then comes in front of me, and either prostrates fully or bows deeply from the waist until his helmet touches the ground, before springing back up, the weight of his regalia counting for nothing. The volcanic energy of the deity can barely be contained within the earthly frailty of the Kuten, who moves and gestures as if his body were made of rubber and driven by a coiled spring of enormous power. There follows an interchange between Nechung and myself, where he makes ritual offerings to me. I then ask any personal questions I have for him. After replying, he returns to his stool and listens to my questions put by members of the government. Before giving answers to these, the Kuten begins to dance again, thrashing his sword above his head. He looks like a magnificent, fierce Tibetan warrior chieftain of old. As soon as Dorje Drakden has finished speaking, the Kuten makes a final offering before collapsing, a rigid and lifeless form, signifying the end of the possession. Simultaneously, the knot holding his helmet in place is untied in a great hurry by his assistants, who then carry him out to recover while the ceremony continues. Unquote. I've mentioned a few times when a cool image search comes up in these episodes, and Kuten Oracle Costume is a very good one. Uh, that is spelled K-U-T-E-N. There is also footage of these rituals being performed on YouTube, so... If you want to see what this looks like, you can. Thanks for that suggestion. I highly recommend looking those up as well. I've seen footage of one of these possessions in a documentary that I watched in a course, and I desperately searched for the name of it and tried to remember it, and I might still find it, but I haven't found it yet. And once I do, even after the episode is uploaded, I'll add it to the resources for the show, but it is fantastic. This description that the Dalai Lama gives leaves out an issue that I have seen come up in my own research about this phenomenon, and which we have talked about before, known as POA. You'll remember from our previous episode that this is the practice of consciousness transference, where the practitioner practices how to transfer their consciousness elsewhere on command. This is one of the things that happens during the trance that the Dalai Lama described initially. This description resonates throughout history and shows the inclusion of this non-Buddhist ritual in a Buddhist context. To my knowledge, no other Buddhist clergy across East Asia have had any oracles or any sort of possession rituals in the same fashion. This is off script and literally something I just thought of, but for Poa, 
that sounds very similar to the Western concept of astral projection. Is is that the right lane to be in and the right ballpark? It's pretty close. A lot of this POA stuff is closed and initiatory, and so we have very little specific knowledge of it. Uh, but okay. as we discussed in the episode we did on it, dealing with the time of death, that's when this becomes culminated in the most difficult and the most significant execution of POA. Whenever somebody dies and right at the very last instant, they choose to put their mind or their consciousness into a Buddha realm of their choosing, into a pure land of their choosing. That's kind of what we know the most about with it. However, applying it in this context of possession is fascinating because is it the Kuten, the actual human being, who is projecting their mind somewhere else, or is it the Nechung Oracle, which is the name for the position that's reincarnated over time and has served the Dalai Lama literally since the second Dalai Lama, going all the way back to the 1500s? Or is it Dorje Drakden or Pehar who's doing this? It's kind of confusing. Because of a lot of the wishy-washiness of esoteric Buddhist doctrine, you can make a strong argument for each individual of all of those three that I listed doing it or for all three of them doing it at the same time. They're doing sort of like a three-way trade, you might say. So it's complicated. I think that astral projection is a good way to help people understand it in a Western and the English language setting. But one of the important differences about astral projection is that when you project astrally, you have some sort of like consciousness body that inhabits the realm of your dream, wherever you're dreaming or whatever astral means you're using. And that's kind of not what's going on in POA. You're kind of actually taking all of your awareness and all of your memories, experience, all of your karmic background, and all of your selfhood, and I say selfhood with a big asterisk because there is no self in Buddhism, you're taking all of that with you elsewhere. So it's almost like astral projection turned up to 11 because you are fully leaving your body and everything that you carry with you is, is going with you. So imagine that, you know, in astral projection, whenever you have awareness that you are somewhere else from your body, imagine that that connection to the body was just completely cut off. That's kind of what's going on here. Okay. So let's get back to the script. How ought we interpret and understand possession in Buddhism? In the context of Buddhism in the modern day, we have a problem in interpreting and understanding this phenomenon. A scientific and skeptical mind and an accompanying materialist worldview will tell us that possession by a spirit and telling the future should be impossible. The Dalai Lama himself lives in the modern world. He has a phone, his government uses computers, and he is notoriously pro-science. He has been very inviting to Western scientists ever since the 50s and 60s to come and research some of the Buddhists' claims, such as reincarnation, poa, prophecy, and other things. But geopolitical matters and safety matters, such as his exile to northern India from Tibet by the Chinese government, have complicated researchers' ability to work closely with him and with his monks. Given that modern science, skepticism, and rationalism does not leave a lot of room for oracles and possessions, the Dalai Lama and Tibetan Buddhism at large faces a challenge to justify the continuation of the tradition as they do with many other rituals and traditions, such as the continued reincarnation and selection of the next Dalai Lama. 
When faced with challenges to justify the continuation of the Neicheng Oracle, the Dalai Lama repeatedly says not only that the Oracle is one of his close advisors and trusted confidants, but that his answers to the Dalai Lama's questions have always been specific, correct, and well thought out. The Dalai Lama says that he maintains faith that there is a scientific explanation for why this is the case, but the current absence of one due to the aforementioned conditions is not enough for him to doubt his oracle because he has such a good relationship with him and has for so many lifetimes. Additionally, he reiterates that the oracle and his prophecies are not supernatural foresight into the future. They are answers to questions posed by the Dalai Lama which are directed toward assisting him and his entire nation of Tibet in the practice of the Dharma. Once again, I'd like to read from a section of the Dalai Lama's book to illuminate this issue. Quote, The purpose of oracles is not, as might be supposed, simply to tell the future. This is only part of what they do. In addition, they can be called upon as protectors and in some cases they can be used as healers, but their principal function is to assist people in their practice of the Dharma. Another point to remember is that the word oracle itself is misleading. It implies that there are people who possess oracular powers. This is wrong. In the Tibetan tradition, there are merely certain men and women who act as mediums between the natural and the spiritual realms, the name for them being kuten, which means literally the physical basis. Also, I should point out that whilst it is usual to speak of oracles as if they were people, this is done for convenience. More accurately, they can be described as spirits, which are associated with particular things, for example a statue, people, and places. This should not be taken to imply belief in the existence of external independent entities, however. In former times, there must have been many hundred oracles throughout Tibet. Few survive, but the most important, those used by the Tibetan government, still exist. Of these, the principal one is known as the Neicheng Oracle. Through him manifests Dorje Drakten, one of the protector divinities of the Dalai Lama. Unquote. I'm very personally fascinated by the preservation of rituals and traditions such as these simply because they are like living and dynamic museum artifacts. They are windows into past cultures, past mindsets, and past worldviews, and so long as nobody is being hurt or harmed by the continuation of these traditions, I think that its cultural, religious, and historical significance ought to be upheld. In doing so, I also think that the meaning ought not to be cleared or emptied out of it either, even if we have prevailing ways of thinking which cast doubt on the perceived reality of the ritual. We should remember that real and not real are modern and materialist ways of looking at the world and were not ever primary concerns of pre-modern peoples when they were interpreting rituals and traditions. I have some problems with that explanation from the Dalai Lama, but at the end of the day, it's not hurting anyone, so why not? Like you said, this is a dynamic and living connection to the past. And even if this oracle isn't literally being possessed by a deity, the ritual in and of itself can be helpful and healthy for the participants. I understand you know, wanting to fortify one's religion with scientific inquiry, but talking about these issues that the Dalai Lama is inviting scientists to investigate, that science is the wrong tool for that, because science requires falsifiability, and religious claims 
especially ones as supernatural as this one, can't really be proven false. You can always suppose a way that modern eyes and sensors and materials can't analyze this religious stuff. So I don't think the draw for trying to get this scientifically backed up is wise. That seems like a bad choice. But the ritual itself is cool, and it's not hurting anyone, and it has a lot of significance symbolically, and that's enough. I agree completely. I'm glad that you bring up the issue of aiming to fortify the religious claims that Tibetan Buddhism is making with scientific inquiry. The Dalai Lama clearly does have an agenda here. He is trying to prove that Buddhism has it right by means of attempting to bring science in to verify some of the claims that it's making. In his book, he talks about wanting to try and measure or try and experimentally verify claims of reincarnation and of mindstream transference and of emptiness and all of these other things, which, like you say, it's kind of impossible to falsify or prove false these sort of claims. And it's impossible to sort of have the repeatability that science needs. And science is not asking those questions for the most part. And that's kind of okay. There's this science versus religion scheme that the Dalai Lama came up in and kind of wanted to bridge by bringing science into this. But it's, it's not really a useful scheme. I kind of believe that science and religion coexisting rather than science or religion existing is the way to go. Because as you say, religion and ritual and tradition and history and stuff like that, as long as it's not hurting anyone, those things can serve functions and purposes for the community that science does not, should not, and cannot. Science can help us fix our broken legs and cure our viruses and cure our diseases. Then ritual and religion can cure our minds and our hearts in ways that science can't. That's perfectly okay. It's perfectly okay for these two to not have to touch a lot. I think it would be cool if they did, and the Dalai Lama thinks it would be cool if they did in a lot of ways, but they don't have to. They just simply don't have to in order for the claims of one or the other to be valid to the people for whom they are valid too. I think that the Dalai Lama has a pro-scientism perspective. Scientism is something that actual scientists don't actually really ascribe to, and it's this thought that experimental verifiability, experimental falsifiability, these are the ultimate means by which we should interpret the world and everything in it. And nobody actually thinks that, <laughs> except for people who are not scientists, right? There are people who say science is good for this and something else is good for that. And I think that that's kind of the way forward here. And I think the Dalai Lama is realizing now in the modern era that that's kind of how things should go. He has kind of stopped inviting scientists and kind of stopped harping on the benefits of science in such a full-throated way. Most of that came earlier on in his career, and now I think that he's no longer focused on that agenda anymore. He's a religious leader, but he's also part of Tibetan government, and therefore he's partially a politician. 
So exactly, it's not what you usually think of when you're talking about a Buddhist figure, and like there's some crossing of religion and state that I instinctually do not like. But also, like it's it's his job. That's what he's there for. So I'm not like saying he's wrong for having done that necessarily. But even supposedly benevolent actors like that, when you get into the real world, they have their agenda. And you, there's no way to get around that happening. Absolutely. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion of possession in Buddhism. Join us next week where we will discuss Ananda. Who is Ananda? What role does he play in the texts? How does this role change over time? We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much. My name is Nick Bright, scholar of East Asian religions and voice of hearer. And I'm Docs, editor, question asker, and voice of hermit. And this is Med Bright on Buddhism. Thank you for listening. If you like our podcast, or if you have a question you'd like us to discuss, we'd love to hear from you. Please consider leaving a comment or review, subscribing, or joining us on social media. Email us at bright.on.buddhism at gmail.com or find us on Mastodon at brightbuddhism at mstdn.party. As always, citations and resources for this episode can be found in the show notes. Thank you.